Um, it, it's sort of, Matthew 13 sort of signals uh, a new chapter uh, within Matthew's gospel, if you will. There's, there's a shift that begins in Matthew 13 that's different from where we had been before in the gospel. And, and, so, and, and that shift is noted here. In Matthew 13, there's seven parables that Jesus tells. So the whole chapter is just parables, two of them that are longer, the two that we're going to kind of focus on more this morning, and, and the rest are shorter. But, but really what it is, what Matthew 13 is doing is it's focused around this thing where Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the, the nature of the kingdom of heaven is like. And, and it's calling, and, and this is, we'll, we'll, we'll look at this a little bit, but it's calling for a decision on the part of those who are hearing, or in our case, reading uh, these, these words. And, and so really the parables are a vehicle, if you will, for the message of Jesus' invitation and this call that he has for discipleship with him. And so over this, there can be, there's, there's this question sort of over it for us, and it is, what will our response to Jesus be? And so if you want to open up to Matthew 13, we'll read the first little bit of it. And it'll be on the screen behind me as well. So starting in verse 1, it says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell in rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no roots. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven that has been given to you, but not, has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing they do not see, though hearing they do not hear or understand, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will ever be hearing but never understanding. You will, ever, you will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's hearts has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are you your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. So the move that we see here in the text from the synagogue where Jesus is in the synagogue, he's having all that, if you remember the confrontation a lot with the religious leaders, there's this move now to the lake. And it's significant, because he's now, now he's like, he, there, there's been this rejection of him, 
and he's, and he's moving out now to the wider group of people, to the wider population, and, and, it's, and, and now he's beginning to teach them. And so before we look at this parable, I want to I I ask about why Jesus spoke in parables. Why? Because parables require effort and desire to understand. And, and they have a way of calling forth this response from us. The, the very nature of a parable incites a response within us, whatever it may be. And, and so verse 11 here, it speaks of this parable where, when Jesus is speaking to the disciples containing secrets of the kingdom or, or mysteries is another way to translate that. The, the translation of that word there, though, parable, into English, it's, it's spurred some unfortunate interpretations actually for us and the way that we read our Bibles. Because it, it's given us this idea that within the parables are these hidden mysteries or secrets that we have to uncover that are only for those on the inside, only for those in the know. Like you've got to kind of get in, into, the seat, into the club, if you will, and then you'll understand it. But, but if we look at how Jesus used parables as a whole and how they were received, it, it wasn't that they were understood so much as whether or not people wanted to receive them or not. So it wasn't about understanding, or rather it was what do I do with this? And in fact, the Aramaic, and that was Jesus' native language that he would have been speaking in, the, the word there that's translated as parable in the Greek had the meaning of a riddle or a puzzle, if you will, that you, you had, to, had to piece it together. And so the original audience who heard these parables, and, and this one specifically, they would have probably had a better understanding of the references that Jesus was making sometimes than, than we may or may not get. And so we have to understand now, we have to ask, if you will, how, how do we understand the context of the parables then, what Jesus meant, and how do we understand that now? Right, And, that, and that's really important, actually. Um, I was reading a little bit about that this week. You know like Augustine, who's regarded a, a massive, you know, theological giant in Christian history, he botched the, the interpretation of parables, like really badly, if, if you look at some of how, what he did with them. Because again, it's, interpretation is really, really important when we look at parables. And so throughout the Gospels, we, we, we see Jesus tell parables with the expectation that people will understand. And that's why he's telling the parables. And, and we see examples all throughout the Gospels where clearly, as, as Jesus is telling parables, the people got it. They, they got it. Either, and, and whether they responded negatively or positively, they got the point. And so where there is, or if there is a sense of hiddenness, if you will, in the parables, it's not about being like part of an inner club and getting secret knowledge. It's an invitation to seek for, for us. It's an invitation to, to go deeper. The, the intent of the parables is for us to look at ourselves, to, to assess, to be spurred to decision in our lives. It, it's sort of asking as we're, as we're listening to a parable, are you hungry for more? Are you hungry for what I have for you? 
And maybe this, this is helpful. I found this helpful. Verse 12, if you look at it in the New Living Translation, it says, to those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. We, we see and hear, but do we desire to understand? Do, do we want to look? Do we want to dig so that we can perceive? That's, that's the question that, that Jesus is putting before us. It's, it's a calling of this response from us, if you will. That's, that's the lightning rod of parables. That, that it's like, oh, okay, so it's eliciting something in me. What is it? And so when we can look at these words that Jesus says here, we can, we can look at those words of Isaiah that he quoted and say, do we receive those as an invitation to examine ourselves? Do, do I want to understand? Do I want to perceive? How is the condition of my heart? Do I want to respond to Jesus this morning so that I can receive the healing that I need? Or am I content with where I'm at? Because it's comfortable, and I feel secure, and, and, I'm, and I'm okay with that. And, and so then, and the next question maybe that we would ask is, why did Jesus explicitly explain this parable to the disciples? Because they come to him and they ask, why? Well, it seems that from the text, they wanted to see. They, they wanted to understand and because of that posture, Jesus wanted to show them. And what Jesus is doing here is revealing through these parables, again, through the whole chapter, and we won't look at the whole chapter, but, but he's, through all these parables, he's revealing the nature of the kingdom of God. So when he says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, or that he, what he's literally saying is, it is like this with the kingdom of God. It's not that it's like an actual mustard seed. He's saying it's, it's the whole of the, of the example is this is the nature of the kingdom of God and how it is. And so Jesus is inviting us to respond to that invitation to be part of this kingdom. Really, that's what this, this chapter is about. I'm inviting you, this is the invitation to be part of my kingdom on this earth do you want to respond to this? And the decision is ours to respond in obedience or not. And so I want to I do something a little bit different this morning with this first parable than maybe, maybe what we'd expect. You know, there's, there's maybe a typical way to kind of go through this parable of the sower, if you will, of like looking at the four different types of soils and what, what type of soil are you and where you land and all that. It's, it's a... It's a conventional way. It's not wrong. It's a good way to, to potentially look at it to, to exegete the scripture. But I want, I, want us, I want us to see this a little bit different this morning. And I, and I think there's something here for us to see this in a different way, if you will. And so I want to I read it first, and then we'll go on. So verse 18, this is where Jesus explains the parable to the disciples. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. 
But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Okay. Now, now I want to give you parable of the sower version 2.0. Not, 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 I'm not claiming that this is inspired at all. But I, I'm, I'm, I'm putting this forth as maybe a hermeneutical possibility for us of how we interpret this this parable, a possible application of this parable for today, if you will. Okay, so, so Jesus sowing the seed, he's revealing hope to people. The, the, the same good news is being revealed to all four of these types of people. So the first person encounters and hears this message of hope and is emotionally impacted, but they struggle to understand how it connects to their life. Additionally, there isn't anyone around them able or willing to help them grasp the significance of this good news for their lives, and so they do nothing with this initial feeling of hope. Satan sees this and makes sure that any lingering desire is ignored and extinguished. The second person hears the message of hope, is overcome with joy, and receives Jesus. They immerse themselves in a bunch of different church activities and enjoy the new life they've found. But eventually the excitement of the initial experience wears off. They hear a few things they don't like and the need for change in their life feels too difficult and overwhelming. The cost of following Jesus and the stuff it brings to the surface in their lives is more than they signed on for and they allow themselves to fall away. The third person hears the message of hope and responds to Jesus' invitation. During this time, change is experienced and noticed. They begin to talk of themselves as a different person since meeting Jesus. But as time goes on, they have other influences in their lives that gain their attention. The pace of life begins to increase little by little. So much to accomplish and achieve. Their commitment to Jesus and his church begins to have less and less priority. As time goes on, the hope of Jesus is replaced with the belief that experiences, stuff, and financial prosperity can satisfy. They still profess Jesus, but it's obvious what holds their heart. The fourth person also hears of this hope and is overcome with joy as they understand the depth of their need. They surrender their life to Jesus and begin to grow. Their growth is slow but steady. Change is happening, sometimes more noticeable and sometimes less so. But they are growing in their relationship with God. When struggles and difficulties arise, their roots in God sustain them. Over time, their obedience to God and their union with Jesus grows spiritual maturity, resulting in more and more evidence or fruit of their life in Jesus. I wonder if that's another possibility for how we understand the parable of the sower for today. And as it pertains to this parable, the invitation from Jesus is that we would be that fourth person, that we would be rooted, growing, and bearing fruit for Jesus. 
That's, that's the response that Jesus is calling for here. Do, and, and he's asking, do you want to be this person? And, it, and it's a question that can and will radically reorientate our lives, how we respond to that question. And so, what prevents that from taking place in our lives and in the, or in the lives of others? What, what chokes out the seeds sown? What, what questions does this parable stir in me? And so I want to I explore those three conditions there that Jesus says will keep us from his life. So the first condition he talks about there is, is lack of understanding in verse 19. So it's this, it, it, you wonder, is, like, like, is this because there's no one around them to help to understand the person, like they, like they somehow they don't understand. So why is that? Um, now, now, what what about the soil condition here? The, the, and what what makes good soil? Right? What I mean from a, in a from a, on this earth, what makes good soil? We could think about it from that respect, right? What what is the conditions that we need for good soil? And so the details of the parable. And Jesus' explanation reveal a direct correlation here between each type of soil and what transpired. There was a direct correlation to that. So we see there's, there's, it's the same sower. The sower doesn't change. It's the same seed. The seed doesn't change. Difference is the condition of the land that the seed lands on. For those who don't understand here, it's, it's an invitation to seek. Right? So, if, so those who are hearing this and going, maybe they're, I don't understand. Or if we're hearing this and going, I don't know if I understand the hope of the gospel. Well, it's an invitation to seek. And a question of, will I? For others, it's an awareness that there are those around. Maybe for us, it's an awareness of there are those around who need the help or they need the opportunity to understand the hope of Jesus. What, what if they don't have people around them to help them? What, what about children? What about youth? Do, do, they, do they understand the depth of the hope of Jesus for their lives? Do we, do we assume that? And maybe we shouldn't assume that. Are, are we investing in our kids when it comes to time in scripture together? When it comes to allowing hard questions from our kids, allowing them to question and to doubt, and, and seeing that doubt and questions as an, actually as an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work, not as just a tamper it, shut it down. And maybe there's a responsibility here as well for the one hearing the hope of Jesus what do they do with it? What, what do we do with that? I, I remember, like when I, when I read this, I think of a coworker that I had years ago, and I, and I think about that individual specifically when I read this, and when it comes to this part of the parable and the choices that are made in response to hearing the hope of the gospel. The second condition that keeps us from life in Jesus, verse 21, Jesus talks about no roots. They don't have the roots that they need to sustain them long term. 
You know, this, this past spring, <laughs> I, I've done it before, but I, again, once again, I attempted to grow some of my own plants in our house from seed early on. I got the idea that I was going to try to do this. I wanted to have a bit of an experiment. Now, admittedly, what I did, I, I did with minimal investment. I didn't really want to spend the money on, you know, a proper light, and, I, and I, I, I did it on the cheap, if you will. But I was like, maybe I can do this in my entrance because it gets enough sun, you know, and I, and I had this idea of what I would do, and so... I had these plants, they were starting to grow, and they, they shot up so well. Like, I was like, yes, this is going to work, and they were looking so good, and it didn't end well. And you know why the problem was? It came down to lack of roots. It did not, those little plants did not have the root system they needed to sustain them all the way to where they needed to be transplanted out into the garden. And I, I remember thinking, like at first going, yeah, this is going so well. And then the crash was hard. It, it ended badly, really badly. But, but there are people in this category that maybe you actually never expect. And, and I've known some. Like, there, there are different versions of this parable, if you will, for different generations, right? One, one is the kid who, who grows up in the church but has more and more exposure to different ideologies and worldviews as they get into high school and, and as they get into university, and their faith is found to be shallow. And the stats are painful. The stats are that 80% of kids in the evangelical church, by the time they reach university or after, will leave the church and will walk away from Jesus. 80%. And that number hasn't changed much over the last 20, 25 years. It's because it has to do with roots. Roots that aren't deep enough to withstand the climate of a godless culture that we live in. And so the obvious question is, how do we grow roots that sustain us in our lives? How do we have a root system in God that will sustain this is, this is one of the reasons for our 10 core commitments that we want to sow into LCF. And, and we want to invite us as the people of God to live into. Spiritual disciplines, they're, they're certainly part of this. right? Embracing those, those practices that have sustained the church for over 2,000 years. Relationship with God through immersion in prayer, scripture, worship, commitment to the local church, fasting, rest, Sabbath, on Those spiritual practices, yeah, there's something in those that are incredibly beneficial to grow roots in God. And, it, and 2,000 years of church history have proven that. And a lot of this, you know, a lot of this comes down to personal responsibility, Right? And, and that will we invest in the disciplines and the practices that grow our roots in God and grow spiritual maturity? Will I take the time? Will I get off Netflix? Or will I get off Disney Plus? Or will I, you know, depending on the age, will I get off video games? Will I, will I spend time nurturing a relationship with God? It's, it's personal responsibility. This is, this is also the reason that, we, that we've been, you know, over the years, 
We've been so passionate about some of the courses that we offer and teach here. Why, why do we do that? Do we do it because we just want to fill our calendars in the evenings and we just want to make you busy and I just want to add more stuff on your plate? Is that why we do that stuff? We just want to check the box? No, the reason actually is we want people, our desires that our roots would grow in God, that our spiritual disciplines and practices and our life in God would grow to sustain us. third condition that keeps us from life in Jesus that Jesus mentions here is the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. If you look through the Gospels and if you're looking for it, you, you realize how often Jesus talks about money and connections to it, if you will. And, and Jesus tells us plainly earlier in Matthew, he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Can't do it. Money or, 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 you know, the things that money can buy, the stuff that we can accumulate with money, what happens? Those things can become idols in our lives that we worship and that compete for our affections with God. And Jesus warns us. He says, he warns us about the treasures on this earth, seeking after the treasures of this earth, which in a Western, secular, you know, consumeristic culture are... Man, like everywhere. Just, just attain the treasures of this earth. And Jesus says, he warns us about that. He says, look, if, if that's what your hearts become infatuated with, if that's what your hearts go after, that, that's, that's going to lead you away from God's kingdom. Where your treasure is, Jesus said, there your heart will also be. So, Jesus spoke about the danger of greed. He spoke about the danger of self-indulgence. Paul, in, in, in Ephesians, Paul speaks about greed separating us from the life of God. That, that any form of greed in our lives can actually separate us from the very life of God. And scripture teaches us that all that we have, all that we have received is from God. All of it. This is why the, the discipline of tithing is such a key part of, of discipleship to Jesus. The premise of tithing in the Old Testament wasn't that 90% of what you have is yours and, and you just give a token 10% to God, but rather that, that everything is God's and in his generosity, God says, I only want to keep 10%. You get to keep 90%. See, that, that flips how we look at, at tithing flips how we look at what we keep and what we think is ours. And this, this isn't Old Testament versus New Testament either. In Matthew 23, Jesus clearly affirms tithing. He clearly says that must go on. And there's, there's no support in the New Testament, actually, that abolishes tithing. It actually, rather, the New Testament calls us to be generous above and beyond the tithe that we'd actually be an even more generous people out of the abundance of what we have in Christ. What, why, does, why does Jesus talk about money? Why, 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 is this, why does he talk about the uncomfortable topic of money? Like you almost, it, it, almost, it gets uncomfortable in here, right? As soon as, as soon as we start talking about money here, correct me if I'm wrong, it gets a little bit, oh, we're, we're touching that. 
Jesus touched it a lot. And it's because it's a huge matter of worship in our lives. That's why Jesus is so, so clear. You cannot serve God and serve money. Jesus talked a lot about money because he knows that we are inclined, all throughout human history, we are inclined to make money and all the stuff around it as a rival God to our worship of God. And, and, and that it, it serves our own pleasure, it serves our own comfort, and all that stuff. And so how we handle our money, our tithing, and our possessions, it's, it's a telling indicator of our obedience to Jesus and to discipleship to him. To, to live as though what we have accumulated in our bank or our bank accounts or our mutual funds or our, in our homes or in our driveways, to live as that that's ours without any accountability to God is just completely at odds with what Scripture says. So, so last year I, I bought myself an older BMW. I should state that I bought that car with the blessing and the support of my wife. Um, there, there was conversation around that and blessing. And, and, and the reason was, I, you know, I wanted to experience the old slogan of BMW, the ultimate driving machine. And by the way, it is the ultimate driving machine. It really is. But <laughs> I also came to experience that people have a lot of different assumptions and opinions around certain vehicles with certain emblems on them. That was also very interesting. And so... Earlier this fall, I sold the car, and uh, I had some people that were, seemed surprised, and they asked me why, and there were a few reasons around it, season of life, fuel prices, that was another reason, but, but the main reason is God told me to sell it. I, I, I remember clear as day where God was, he just told me, it's, it's time to sell this car, Paul, and I, and I knew it. And I knew that it was a matter of obedience. And, and you know what's remarkable? That people ask me, they say, like, aren't you sad that that car is gone? And I'm like, no, actually. Because I actually really know that I was, like, I was being obedient to what the Lord had commanded me to. And there's a, there's a real sense of peace within that that goes with that. And ultimately, the reason is, and, and, and you know, it's like, trying to live like this, right? Like, like I'm not standing up here as like the alt, I've, I've completely got this figured out, but trying to live with this attitude and posture in my life that nothing I have is mine. That ultimately, it's the Lord's. I, I'm also, those of you who know, I'm also really finicky about my vehicles. I've all, I'm, doesn't matter what I own, I'm finicky about them. And I, so years ago, I had a nice uh, Honda Civic. Those are not the ultimate driving machine. And I remember the Lord told me that I needed to, when we were, we were leaving on vacation, and we were taking our van, and I needed to lend this vehicle out to someone else who needed a vehicle, and we were gone. And I was like, are you serious, God? Like, I remember having this internal, like, they don't take care of vehicles like me. Like, <laughs> and there was this inner battle of me going, and the Lord's like, Paul, you, like, it was, anyways, the conversation was clear to me, you need to do this, because I'm asking you to do this, and so I'm trying in my life to live with this posture of, I, I, like, 
the, okay, let's, let's get real, okay? We, we, many times we live with the idea that everything is ours. Instinctively, we do. And so to live like this posture of it's not mine, Lord, it's yours, and you can use it, and you can tell me what to do with something as you see fit, that's not normal. It's not. It, we, we, we want to keep stuff for ourselves, but we are, we're called to steward and care for what we have, yes, but release it if and when God says, release it. And so Jesus speaks in Matthew 6 here about the worries of life and, and, and not allowing that reality, because worries of life is a reality, to control our lives. And, and then here Jesus then also adds the danger of wealth and deceitfulness of it. Why does he do that? Well, the deceitfulness of wealth means that wealth can choke out our desire for Jesus. It, it, there's a deceitfulness to it that it can tell you, you have what you need, you don't really need Jesus. And here's, and here's the thing, we are in the thick of the problem because we're all rich. You're rich. We are all sitting here and we are all in like the top, top, top percentile of the world. So we're in the thick of this when we read this because we can't go, oh, I'm not rich. And some of us have more than others, sure. Well, but we all have a responsibility for what we have received. Notice too here, Jesus doesn't say that these people have fallen away. They're unfruitful, but it doesn't say that they've fallen away. That's sobering. How, how we handle our money has a direct correlation to our life with Jesus. Why? Because it's really, it's ultimately about freedom. Can, can I release what I have? Can I not be held by the things of this earth? Dwayne mentioned it this morning. Can we have an eternal perspective that we operate out of that so everything is, is ultimately not just about this earth? And that leads to the parable of the weeds. And I, I'm, just gonna, I'm gonna make a quick connection here to wrap up this morning. I'm not gonna read the parable of the weeds. I'll, the scriptures will be up behind me. Um, basically, the, the, the gist of this parable is that Jesus says this is another nature of what the kingdom of, of heaven is like. And for those that are, that are in the kingdom and are growing, there's the evil one who comes and he sows in other weeds that grow up alongside those in the kingdom. And what do you do with this? And Jesus says it's the work of Satan, it's the work of the evil one who's done this. And I want to... Yeah, so the, and, and so Jesus, he talks about how, you know, the, in the parable, the servants come, do you want us to come and do you want to uproot the, us to uproot the weeds that are growing? And he says, no, 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 don't do that because if you do that, you might pull up the wheat, the good stuff that's growing alongside of it. And so wait until the harvest and then we'll separate the two of them. And Jesus, when he explains this parable to the disciples, he says that, that the weeds... I just want to make sure I have the verse here. The weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. 
And so he talks about this, this coming reality of the kingdom and this coming reality of the end of the earth. And it reveals to us a few really, really important things alongside the parable of the sower. That is, the earth is the Lord's. He owns the field. He owns the entire field. He owns this world. He owns this earth. The enemy is encroaching on it right now. And so that's, that's such a helpful perspective, is it not? Amidst all the chaos that's going around us in the world, all the stuff that's happening on this earth and going, remember, the earth is the Lord's. It also reminds us here, he says in verse 43, he talks about the, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He's speaking about this reality of the new heaven and the new earth that is to come where the righteous will reign with their father. And this is, this is what all of human history is moving towards. As we see everything that's going on in the world around us right now, we can see this is where history is headed. It also reveals that there's, there's a reality of hell for those who oppose God's way, for those who embrace their own way, there's, there is, there's not good coming at the end of this age. And what Jesus is clearly speaking here amidst these parables is it matters how we live. That's, that's the point he's making. It matters the importance that we place on the kingdom of God in our lives. The decisions we make, the influences that we allow into our lives, they will either deepen our love for God or, or they'll lead us away. And so do, do we see every day on this earth, if you will, as preparation for the life to come? It's, it's this thing of living with an eternal mindset that is so radically different from the world around us as living just for temporal this age. It's living for God's kingdom to come. It's, it's, you know, two, as I was going through this, I realized two of our, our core commitments as a church that we want to really live into are found in this parable. And that is the, our desire for this, this kingdom-focused living and the reality of eternity, that there is an age to come and the conviction that, that every moment, every area of our lives is to be directed by this reality of eternity. Because it, it, it radically reorientates us of how we look at this earth, how we look at every part of our lives, how we look at our finances, how we look at every part. If we see that there is an age to come and a new heaven and a new earth and we're not just living for the next 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, or whatever it is. And so the parable reveals what we face now, right now, that there is an enemy that is working against God's kingdom. There's an enemy that's sowing evil into this world. But there is great, great hope for those who are rooted in God. Great, eternal hope for us that are rooted in God. A glorious, glorious future is promised. It says they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That, that, wasn't, that, was, that was how Jesus explained it to the disciples. Like, whoa! Like, like, right, like, like, do we see that? He's explaining that this is what it means. 
This is a coming reality for us. It, it, it has echoes in there of Revelation 21. When I, was, when I was thinking about this and reading this, I'm like, this sounds like Revelation 21, right? Where it speaks about the new heavenly Jerusalem, the new city, the new Jerusalem on this earth and how the light, the very light of God, the light of God the Father, the light of Jesus the Son will give light to that city. I, I, don't, I don't know quite how to picture how that's all gonna look, but it's radiant, radiant light. And we will shine like the sun there. So this, this calls for a, a response in our lives. Again, that's, that's the purpose of, of what Jesus is doing here with these parables. How, how will you respond? It's, it's an invitation to embrace this call from Jesus. It's an invitation right now to go, how am I going to respond? So I want to I I allow us that room, if you will, that, that invitation in our lives to follow Jesus and to follow his way, to walk in union with Jesus, having our roots go deep in him and seeing his fruit in our lives. You know what's so amazing about that is even when we go, I, I don't know, like the, I struggle to believe of whether I can, I can really embrace that in my life or I, I struggle to see where that's always present in my life or I, there, there's aspects in me that, 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 that wrestle with that or there's things that, that I'm just, there's a, there's a little bit of tension in me about that. This, this is the desire of your father in heaven. This, this is his desire for us. So it's not like, it's, it's not like we have to strain again and, and, and you know, put all, like, like it's all dependent on our effort or it's dependent on like, I got to strain to somehow make this happen. This, this is the heart of the Father. This is where, where Jesus is saying, this, this is the heart of my Father. This is my heart for those who follow me. That this is what they would be like. That we would be radically, radically different that as, as we go out into the world and we encounter all sorts of people that don't have understanding, people that maybe have had experiences but they have no root, people who maybe are like, they, they're, they're, maybe they profess Jesus, but, but there's, there's this, this, the worries of life and the deceitful, deceitfulness of wealth that's, that's, that's choking this and, that, and, that, and that's keeping them from their potential in Jesus. We can go out and, and as we can be these people who are rooted and growing and experiencing Jesus. And that's God's heart for us. So I want to give us four questions. I don't know that these are the perfect questions, if I can be fully honest. Uh, I, was, I was wrestling with these, so... Uh, I could probably wrestle for another two hours and come up with different variations. And so I'll just, I'll, I'll humbly put them to you. I, I think there's, there's such value to, to take this and apply it to our lives, to somehow to not just close this, our Bibles, leave here and that's it. But, but how, how, do we, how do we apply this, this response that Jesus is calling for? 
So first question, am, am I willing to respond to these words of Jesus and examine myself? How, how is the condition of the soil of my life? Is it receptive to Jesus' words? Are there areas of my life that choke out the seeds of Jesus? And four, where do I see growth and fruit being produced in me? You know, there's varying levels of fruit here that Jesus talks about, right? We're not all called to produce a hundredfold. We're not all called to produce 60-fold and 30-fold. Praise the Lord, right? That, that, that we're not all, like, we have different giftings, we have different callings, we have different, different areas, and, and we're not all called to meet the same standard, if you will. But we're called to produce fruit. We're called to be fruitful. Jen, if you want to come up. Father, I, I want to thank you for that verse. The promise that the righteous will shine like the sun. I just love that verse. Jesus, I love that you, that's the way that you explained it. I love that that's your heart for those who are, are rooted in you and are growing. There's such, a, there's such a promise there. Jesus, would, would the seeds that you are sowing in our lives, I want to pray that they would hit ground that is receptive and is, is wanting to produce fruit. God, I, I pray where we, we struggle with this. I pray for where we, we try to make sense of this in various areas of our lives where we're trying to apply this to to reality and Holy Spirit, I, I pray that in that, that you'd be speaking really clearly and really specifically to us. Lord, that where there's, there's specific things for us, Lord, we're all in different, different spheres and we have different things going on, but Lord, we want to hear from you. We want to be obedient to what you're speaking to us. God, help us. And may we respond and want to be that fourth person. We pray that in the name of Jesus. We give it all to you, Lord. Amen.